welcome back to Franklin Covey's weekly podcast on leadership with Scott Miller. That's me. I'm your host and interviewer each week where I have the privilege now of hosting what is the world's largest weekly leadership podcast after five years and nearly 300 interviews where each week I have the somewhat enviable and daunting position of sitting in this chair and having conversations with what are our world's greatest minds, the most influential thought leaders. They may come in the form of a military general, perhaps they are a civilian business titan, maybe they are a best-selling author, researcher, academic. In many cases, they are also people that may not be household names, but they did some research or survived some unspeakable tragedy. All of these people, what they have in common is they're here today to share how to be a better leader. Perhaps it's a better leader in your role inside an organization or perhaps as a parent or a provider or a caregiver, you name it. Franklin Covey's mission is to help people ignite their genius and to achieve their own great purposes as the most trusted leadership firm in the world. We're delighted to be able to take our spotlight, our platform, and shine it on complementary minds. I'm also the author of the multi-volume series from HarperCollins called Master Mentors. Volume 1 and Volume 2 are out both in print, softcover, digital audio, and video book from Lit Video, where each year I take 30 of my most influential interviews, and with the permission of the guest, write a short, breezy, fast insight about something they shared on the podcast. Love to have you pick up a copy of Master Mentors, Volume 3, coming out shortly. Our guest today is someone I've been chasing for the better part of a year. I followed her decade for a decade. You know her as perhaps one of the most seminal thought leaders in the genre of strategy. She co-authored the incomparable book, Blue Ocean Strategy. This book has sold nearly 5 million copies. It's one of the biggest bestsellers of our professional generation. She's joining us today from New York City, where she has just recently co-authored a new book called Beyond Disruption. The tagline is, innovate and achieve growth without displacing industries, companies, or jobs. Together with her writing partner, Chan Kim, she's joining us today. Renee Maborn, welcome to On Leadership. Ah, welcome, Scott. It's great to be here with you. Delighted to have you. I mentioned to you off air that I was first introduced to your work about a decade ago when Blue Ocean Strategy came out, uh, known as one of the best-selling business books really of our century. You spoke at the World Business Forum in New York City. I was riveted. Of course, everyone who was employed was reading Blue Ocean Strategy that year and subsequent years as well. And to have seen you then and to have the chance to meet you now is quite an honor. We're delighted you've taken the time to invest in our listeners and viewers. Renee, would you maybe rewind a couple of decades and reorient yourself to all of our listeners around the world on your strategy in terms of your career, the kind of research you do? You are a professor at uh, a very famous school in Europe. I'll let you talk about that as well. And maybe what came to now write what kind of is a bit of a follow-up to Blue Ocean Strategy Beyond Disruption. Yeah. So, you know, first, when you heard me, it was actually probably two decades ago because the book was originally published, Blue Ocean Strategy, in 2005. Wow. And it is based on a series of best-selling articles in Harvard Business Review that began actually in 1997. So this is an over 30-year research journey that we have been on together, Chan, Kim, and myself. And our research really began um, in the mid to late 1980s when we saw you know, uh, competition heating up in America, many, many industries being devastated across the board, earth moving, auto manufacturing, textiles, consumer electronics. 
And the concept of the Rust Belt of America came to be. And yet in business school, all we were teaching was competing. But the real issue that was challenging our organizations was the too much competition. That's why they were losing. So we thought, what will it take not merely to survive? Because that's what all the press talked about at the time. How do we compete better to survive? How can we thrive? And then we realize that there's not only existing industries that companies can compete within, there are also these new industries that companies are creating and we call those blue oceans. And so it really set the stage to say, hey, in strategy, we've all been focused on competing in existing industries and that's important, but as strategy, we can also create these oceans of new market space. And that was our first book. And of course, you know, we laid out not only the theory of blue ocean, um, which is complementary to red oceans or existing industries, but really the tools and processes of how to get there. And that's how um, our research journey started a long time ago. Renee, did you have any idea when Blue Ocean Strategy was released that it would become the phenomenon that it is in executive suites around the world? This book is a bestseller on multiple continents, nearly 50 different translations. It's now in print in... Any idea what would do the have the success it had? Um, so I would say no. Uh, I think we were. I will say that you know Harvard probably and a few other publishers courted us for maybe five years to write a book after we had all these HBR articles, and we didn't feel we were ready to. But what we did feel, and then we finally wrote this book, and I think what we really felt at the time was that we didn't know how big it would go, but we felt it was the best, our best work that we could produce, whether the world judged it or not. But what we really thought was it was an important issue. Because, you know, when we were based in Michigan at the time and we saw Detroit utterly devastated, the auto manufacturers struggling, laying off workers, the city hollowed out because there was less taxes, the, the infrastructure was crumbling. And we thought, wow, if we can start to articulate how we can not only compete but create and earn high growth and profit despite the intensity of competition in the world, which was only just starting, this was an important um, an important piece of research that we could do, and we were dedicated. So I think what we believed in that was that the area we were focused on mattered uh, to companies, to our society, and to employees. And then the world responded that way. But I think that's what we really, even in our current work, you know, we're really asking ourselves, because you never know a bestseller. You never know whether something takes or not. It's really about um, do we think it's an important issue? And do we think that in some big or small way we can help to make um, an understanding in that issue? So that's how we thought. So no, we never predicted it. And in fact, Scott, many people said, oh, professors from Europe, there's never been a bestseller from professors from Europe. And Renee, your family name is hard to pronounce. And, um, you know, uh, Chan Kim, well, we can pronounce his name, but he's Asian. And we don't, how do you say INSEAD, your business school? So actually, people were telling us we'd have a really, really tough time um, to the contrary. Uh, and then the world decided otherwise. Well, in fact, all those things were true, but you succeeded in spite of them. Talk a bit about your role at INSEAD, a, a very world-renowned business school. May not be a common household name to everyone here in America. Talk a bit about what you do there. We'll get uh, we'll get ready to dive into beyond disruption. Yeah, sure. So both Chan Kim and myself, you know, we worked there over twenty years now. I'm lost count of time. 
Uh, we are right now professors there, um, but we are also co-directors. INSEAD established the INSEAD Blue Ocean Strategy Institute, and we have a team of great researchers that um, build cases and pedagogical materials and teaching this uh, so that the school can always be at the forefront of knowledge in this space of creating or the strategy of creating. Uh, INSEAD is one of the top 10 business schools, often in the top five, top three, and even often top one uh, around the world uh, for MBA. And um, also we have a PhD program and a lot of uh, executive education. And I guess the last thing I would say on the school um, is we have a campus in France, uh, but we also have one in Singapore. And we also have a new facility in uh, San Francisco. Um, so it's quite, and in Abu Dhabi actually as well. So it's a quite international uh, school um, and we're very proud of that. Well, congrats on your success. You are a perfect example of there's no such thing as overnight success is that uh, it takes a lot of time, energy and decades. And I imagine you are traveling around the world, which also has achieved uh, or has resulted in the insights in your most recent book, Beyond Disruption. The, the premise of this new book is really about innovation and growth without disruption. But I want you to explain what that means because in some cases, I would think that disruption is a good thing. Now, you might at the surface think that disruption maybe eliminates industries or collapses companies or people lose jobs. And as a capitalist, I might think, well, short-term bad, but long-term good because retooling your skills and learning new skills and maybe being displaced is sometimes a motivation to actually build new opportunities for yourself. Talk about the premise of Beyond Disruption. So first is, you know, we're not saying this, that we're, what we're articulating is that there is a thought of disruption. But as we did our research, let me back up for a minute. You know, when our book Blue Ocean came out, and then as you articulated, really grew um, its impact across the world. Um, at the same time, there was another school of thought really growing, and that was a school of disruption in the field of innovation. So Blue Ocean Strategy was growing in this field of, of strategy and disruption. And then a number of people in uh, the field of innovation came to us and they said, you know, it's interesting. Um, if Blue Ocean Strategy is a strategy of creating, isn't creating, innovating, and then when you look from this perspective of your theory, from the perspective of the field of innovation, how is Blue Ocean strategy actually different from what we call disruption? And so we had dived into our research. We have a very large database and it's been growing over time. It is alive, dynamic and organic. And we looked and we said, well, no, Blue Ocean is not disruption. Disruption occurs when you create a breakthrough solution in an existing industry which causes uh, existing players to fail. And so that's your Amazon is disrupting or Netflix is disrupting. And we saw no, Blue Ocean largely occurs across existing industries like Cirque du Soleil. So it's part theater, uh, part circus, but it doesn't displace either one of those industries, it just has some disruptive growth, takes from the margin, but creates all new demand. We've always been about creating this all new demand, new markets. But in looking at the data, so we said, that's clearly not the same. But we picked up on something we had actually already noticed all the way back in 2005. It's in our appendix. Um, we had these uh, exceptional cases where we saw that there were companies that were creating new markets, not within an industry, not across, but outside of existing industries. 
And those companies didn't have produced disruptive growth, nor a blend of disruptive and non-disruptive growth, but only non-disruptive growth. And so that is where this theory comes. Now, you say, how does that relate to disruption? We believe actually disruption is important. And there are many industries that exist, um, to your point, Scott, that's it, that are inefficient. The industry has been sleeping behind the wheel, or maybe we have found over time they have too many negative externalities on the environment, on human beings, on society. Um, and so the question becomes, those are really ripe for disruption. And you need that because that'll displace ineffective industries with better ones and lead to a more productive use of resources. So just as in Blue Ocean Strategy, we never say competing doesn't matter. We say competing is really important, but you also need to understand creating, and that's what Blue Ocean complements. What we're saying now is yes, disruption matters, but we know a lot about that. We also know a lot about Blue Ocean Strategy now. So let's talk about this other area where we can create a non-disruptive growth without any displacement. And so it's just meant to be non-disruptive in itself and complement the existing theories and look at an overlooked space um, and try to shine a light on it so we can all get better at that. Renee, speak for a moment to our audience around the world that may be in the role as creators, that they are in innovation, they're in R&D, they're in product development, they have some role in taking nothing and turning it into something. Perhaps they've been seeded money by the company for an innovation lab for you know, uh, product services, industries that don't even exist yet or haven't been announced yet. Are there some learnings or research that are in the book that you might share today to say, here are some things we've learned about how to create innovation without disruption that you'd like people to maybe retool or retrain their thinking around? So, you know, the book has in the uh, so whole second half, we talk about what are the three building blocks to unlock non-disruptive creation. So I'm in charge of an R&D unit, as you're saying. I might split my R&D unit into two teams and one, I can come up with some disruptive ideas if they see. Now, if I'm an established company, I appreciate, though, that when I go to disrupt an established industry, that disruptive industry is not going to just sit there and say, please come in and take the bologna off my bread. They're going to fight you. You need to understand that. They understand that. They also know that unless that industry is you know, asleep behind the wheel, as I'm saying, or have a lot of ineffectiveness, for me to displace them, I need to offer a magnitude of a consumer surplus over the existing to be able to displace. So disruption isn't always as nothing, as you said to a good point, success takes effort and time. So I would give a team for that. But then I'd also say, hey, there are these non-disruptive opportunities. And we talk about the three building blocks. And you know, one type, one of the paths, very important, is are there existing problems that we have all taken for granted that exist outside of existing industries, very important outside of existing industries, um, that we've just assumed is the way of life and that we can create a non-disruptive opportunity for. So, you know, the easiest one we can all relate to is like the square reader. Everyone took for granted that if you're an individual, you can't accept a credit card, you're not a commercial enterprise, of course not. And if you're a micro business just starting out or you have an ice cream truck, you can't take a credit card. You know, you don't have that kind of revenue to pay that. So it's just one of the tough inconveniences of being a micro business or an individual. Just got to kind of suck it up. 
And, uh, you know, uh, Jim McKelvey, he and Jack Dorsey were saying, well, wow, it credit cards are the most loved form of payment or most convenient, I should say, very easy. You tend to always have one. We often we don't have cash. And why don't we look to create and solve that long existing problem that we've taken for granted is just a fact that comes with the nuisance of being an individual or small business and create this new market for them. And that's a square reader. So, you know, we try to articulate in the book, you know, what that path is. And then, you know, we have a second path as well about, and by the way, it's not only um, an existing problem, but it can also be an existing opportunity that no one has seized. So when life coaching comes, you know, that's a non-disruptive industry, you know, you start to see that people are striving and trying to improve their quality of life, trying to improve their professional careers, but they have nowhere to turn to. And so life coaching comes and they say, wow, we can make their lives a lot better and teach them, as you try to teach people in your podcast, how to learn and kind of learn from others so you get up the curve faster. And so that's just one of the ways. So if I have a team, to go back to your question, I'm going to have maybe a disruptive team and I'm going to put a non-disruptive team. I want to have a discussion about what that means. And then I really want to focus on the second half of our book where we really try to codify the three steps to give you some tools and frameworks to be able to do that more systematically in your organization. Thank you, Renee. Take this down a couple of notches, maybe to the entrepreneurial mindset. The, speak to the millions of people watching and listening that have a side hustle or have a dream of innovating something and having a product and maybe even breaking free of their organizational employment. Is there a process from all your research and your teaching and the access you have to some of the greatest business minds in the world? Is there a process you might encourage the stay-at-home dad or the, the single mom with a side hustle to say, here are some things, here's, here's a thought process, a strategy, a formula to be thinking about how you could create innovation, either disruptive or non-disruptive. Any kind of keys you might say to the person sitting at home wanting to solve the next big problem, but they can't like name it or figure it out. Yeah. You know, I, I think it's just being and leaning into your experience and uh, looking. So I can only speak from the perspective of non-disruptive. So if, I, if I'm going for disruption, I just look at an existing industry, try to find what's wrong with it, and then try to solve that issue, the existing industry at a magnitude uh, of superiority, of course, to dislodge somebody. Um, but if I'm going for opportunities where I'm outside of existing industry boundaries, I want to look for, as I was articulating with Square, what do we see people struggling with today that we could provide a solution that would make their life fundamentally better? If people are struggling with something or people have a strong aspiration, so like in esports. You know, they, uh, the video game makers started to see, especially in Korea, where video games are very dominant. Um, they're really kind of at the forefront of that culture. They started to see that a lot of people in these kind of video game cafes that they have would stand around simply watching people play, not playing themselves, and not even knowing how to play necessarily. And they started saying, isn't that interesting? We've been making video games that you can play but actually, a lot of people, just like people that don't play tennis, like watching tennis or golf or basketball, can we not feel that aspiration to actually create these large arenas and people come and see the best players with multiplayer games and teams that compete and fulfill that aspiration we see 
um, young people having increasingly. So again, what am I talking about there? Um, three things I would think, think about your direct, we talk about this in Beyond Disruption. One is what do you directly um, experience? Are there struggles you experience in your life, your work, your vocation that everyone is struggling with and that no industry is addressing? And lean into it. And don't say, oh yeah, it's just the way it is. Say, no, wait a minute, maybe it doesn't have to be that way. Maybe we can provide that solution. So that's very, very important. Um, the second way, you know, is what we call emphatically observing, that's esports. They're observing all these people wanting to watch these players play and getting cheering, and yay, they scored and not the people that are in front. And I said, wow, could that be a really big opportunity? Can we see what that's like if we try to bring people together and do that? And I think, you know, and Perry Chan, who started Kickstarter, you know, he was a musician. He had an idea for a great concert, but he couldn't get the funds together to do the concert. And he started thinking, how many of us artistic people want to do things, but we never have the funds because there's no return on investment in what we're doing. We're creating for creating. And he asked his friends and everyone, hey, if I had put this concert on, would you want to come? And they said, yeah. And he goes, darn, what I missed is the capital up front to secure all of this but I could have had the revenue. And that's how the thinking of Kickstarter is, but he didn't let go of the problem he faced. Very important. In life, we often think, ah, you know, it stinks. We move on. They don't. They really, really lean into it. So I would say, you know, lean into directly observing the problems that you experience that no industry is doing or their struggles or their aspirations and really emphatically observing others or even you enter a city. Do you see a problem in that city? with people or the whatever it may be in your town, in your vocation, in, in an industry, and start saying to yourself, can I lean into that? What opportunity could I create? And so, you know, that's all part of that first building block we lay out in Beyond Disruption, how to do it. And we give some examples of other companies. And I think that really um, inspires us to start thinking and understanding how we can do it ourselves. You know, um, when you when you go, when I was little, and I learned to swim. I was afraid to, very afraid to swim. And then I saw other little kids in my peer group starting to swim. And oh my God, if they can do it, I'm going to do it. And I jump in and I kind of watch them a little bit. And I think that's what, by seeing what others have done, it kind of gives you that confidence and you say, if them, why not me? And I think that's very important. Renee, was there a certain political or economic ideology that you came to embrace or study or see as successful or comforting that drove this idea of innovation without disruption? Because you talk in the book about this idea of, you know, win-lose or win-win and that most innovation is based on win-lose. Mm -hmm. Welcome to capitalism. Welcome to much of the world's economy. Has there anything that's happened in your life or in your ideology that kind of took you beyond that to write this book? You know, I think it's a, a, it's a consistent theme across all of our research. I mean, um, instead of competing is also zero sum and uh, blue ocean is really non-zero sum. And then non-disruptive is positive sum, meaning there's no one made worse off, right? And so it's always asking ourselves, why do we need, it's a, it's a difference of a mindset of a scarcity versus abundance. So it's very much an abundance mindset and it's asking, because if you really look at business, fundamentally, where does business come from? It actually comes from war. 
So, you know, that's why we still use in companies, chief executive officers and frontline staff. These are military concepts that have come. And we learn military organizations, um, you know, how to uh, create an assault, how to expand, how to win. And I think that, and this is what, you know, we started to understand very early. And we said, oh, it's very interesting because the key constraining factor of war is land. And for me to win, land on this planet is limited. The only way for me to win is that zero-sum came, is to take land from you. So that's what war initially was, a territorial game. But as this concept migrated and informed a lot of, um, whether explicitly or implicitly, our understanding of business, what happened is we kept that key constraint of war, of limited terrain in our minds, and we started not realizing that in business, the only limitation we have is not the land or the existing industries that are today, but it's a limit of our imagination. And even in Blue Ocean, we you know, start talking about the, um, the evolution of the industry classification systems across the world and how the number of industries has exploded over time. And you know, it's grown and grown. So we don't have to only be limited. And I think that's when we really started to click and we started saying, why are we accepting these constraining factors that really don't apply to the area of business perfectly? And so can we not look for positive sum than zero sum? And I, I think also, you know, having been in Michigan, which was once the auto capital of the world when we were really young, now we're going back, you know, 35 years or whatever that might be. I don't know exactly, I lost count of time for both of us. But to see uh, Michigan once the auto capital of the world, um, you could drive in Detroit, it was vacant. Beautiful neighborhoods boarded up. People walking on the streets with their heads bowed. The Rust Belt of America being formed. And it's all from too much competition. And I think we started to think, can there be another way and why? And then we realized how history went and we saw how industries kept growing. And so we started saying, you know, why should we accept this key constraining factor? Maybe reality and data will show us we need to but we said it's worth exploring. And so we started exploring, we started finding out it is expanding. It's continued to, and we need to understand both sides, we're not naive. Both matter, you know, it can't in business today, you, there's no simple one solution. You know, we have to be short-term and focus on the long-term. We need to have compete and how to create. And um, anyway, that's where we, that's where that perspective I think came from Scott. It makes perfect sense. Uh, a couple more questions, we'll let you go. Uh, do you find any correlation or any consistency that organizations are not capable of moving out of disruptive innovation into non-disruptive? Like once you're a disruptive innovator, it kind of is your culture, it's all you know. Do you find that companies can have both going on? I know you mentioned having teams or in organizations, if you start as a non-disruptive innovator, are you always a non? Talk about that kind of interplay of those juxtaposing ideas. Yeah, so if you look at you know Elon Musk, he has Tesla, which is really disruptive to the auto industry, electric versus standard fossil fuel cars. Um, but then you look at his great, one of his greatest passions, maybe the greatest, is you know space tourism and his efforts to understand Mars and build an interplanetary life for human beings in the future, which is very serious and committed to. 
and understanding what it would take to create an existence on Mars. That's very non-disruptive. So within the same organization, and in fact, most of them, you know, we start with Music Not Impossible in our book, which is, you know, they looked at the existing taken for granted problem that deaf people can't experience music. And they said, well, why not? And they created Music Not Impossible, it's actually the name, a vibrotectile vest that senses vibrations into your body that go to your brain, which simulate music in the sense and allows people to experience the beaks of music. It's beautiful, right? Long, long existed there. Um, so I guess what I want to say, they also have though, some disruptive projects that they do as well, right? So it's not only one or the other. Um, I don't think, so I don't really know an organization. I think a lot of startups think they want to be disruptive very much, more so than established organizations. Disruption is quite um, uh, unnerving at times, surprisingly, for a lot of established companies. They feel they have to, but, you know, I don't want to disrupt myself, of course, because you tell me to disrupt myself. You're telling me to, you know, challenge my livelihood, my expertise, my competencies. So non-disruptive is a bit more... Um, I think emotionally and politically easier to embrace in an organization, established company. And a startup actually likes to, uh, VCs tell us, everyone talks about disruption as startups. And, and I understand because they have no um, baseline that they're possibly challenging of their own organization. But, you know, in our book, we, uh, Beyond Disruption, we talk about the four advantages uh, to thinking beyond disruption. And, you know, one is, as I've articulated, you know, don't think the existing industry is just going to open up and say, take the bologna from my bread. They're going to fight you. Are you ready for that? You know, that's, so it's one, you know, a, a second issue is, you know, and you see it with Uber, you see it with Airbnb, a uh, company we studied in Korea that got shut down. You are going to likely, if you're displacing companies and industries, you might get a lot of blowback. Governments may come at you. Um, activist groups kind of challenge you. So Ubers, you know, have a lot of people, legal fights that they consume and people take them on uh, to constrain their services and how many cars and their fees and everything else because you're hurting the taxi drivers. So I think in the book, you know, we talk people through and it could, it could be a viable way, but there's a lot of advantages non-disruptive. I don't take on the big guy. Square didn't have any difficulty. Um, you know, I don't, uh, because I create no social carnage, I don't uh, externally get people um, up in arms to want to fight me in the, in the business world or in government or in society. I don't get that bad press either. That's, you know, a really nice plus as well. Um, and so, and then we talk about, you know, internal motivation and, um, um, you know, can your employees embrace it? And so I guess, I guess that's what I would say. So I guess I'm a little bit more optimistic that if people, you know, put the different options on the table, I think they'll start a conversation on that. Um, I, we haven't seen anyone. We know everyone talks a lot about disruption and it's very important, but we haven't seen necessarily that many companies that are that wedded to it. I think they're wedded to um, to growth and to innovation first. Um, and that's what I would say there. Renee, let's, I know our time is ending. Uh, one of the highlights of my career has been the time 
that I spent with the late Clayton Christensen, interviewed him many times prior to his passing. He was a member of our board of directors and a profound thinker, obviously the Harvard business professor, prolific author, arguably one of the most respected innovations mind, innovative minds of our lifetime, wrote Innovator's Dilemma, Innovator's Solution. I've interviewed his writing partner, Karen Dillon, on our, on our podcast many times. Um, although Clayton passed about two years ago or so, what do you think Clayton Christensen would think about your ideology around innovation beyond disruption? So, you know, I, I, I try not to put myself, uh, you know, we have great respect for him. He's a great scholar, as you say. I think it's very important to note that. And as I said, we think that um, disruption also really does matter. Yeah. And it is needed in many different industries. Uh, so we're not taking that on. Um, so I don't really want to think for him, but I do think he's a very broad thinker. And I know that he was always asking people, and even in his own field, give me anomalies so that I can think even broader and deeper about what I do. And so, you know, as a scholar that I admire, I don't, I can't speak for him, but, you know, my, and I did not know him personally, um, but he struck me as someone that was very open-minded and yes. broad. Yes. And so I can only leave it at that. And, um, well, you know, we all, you know, you have all those books on your walls and we all grow and benefit from one another in different ways because they all enrich our thinking in different, in different spheres. And he's definitely enriched our thinking. Um, well, but I, I leave it at that. Um, but I think he would have loved it, was my point, because I think he was a very curious person, a total gentleman, always voraciously reading and looking at the counter argument. And I think he would have absolutely loved the idea of complementing disruption with innovation and beyond innovation. So I think he missed a great chance, unfortunately passed way too soon to opine on the the all the upsides right like you talked about as being a not being a social pariah not constantly just you know thriving on destruction there's there's a time to innovate with disruption and as you beautifully argue with your co-author chan kim there's also an opportunity to innovate that makes you a better partner in the world that makes you not a social pariah but a socially responsible corporate citizen and people are clearly gravitating towards those types of mission-driven organizations so I think he would have loved it. I appreciate your time. Your book with your colleague Chan Kin is called Beyond Disruption, Innovate and Achieve Growth Without Displacing Industry Companies or Jobs. Renee Mergeborn, thank you for joining us today from New York City. We appreciate your time. Thank you so much. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation on leadership. Mm -hmm.